Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. My first pick today is a hard-hitting investigation from Rukmini Kalamachi in the New York Times that pieces together the events leading up to the police killing of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old African-American woman in Louisville, Kentucky. Along with George Floyd and many other black Americans who have been killed by law enforcement, Taylor's name has become a rallying cry for the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests against police brutality sweeping the US. But until this piece was published, we really didn't know enough about Taylor herself or the series of events that brought the police to her door on a night which ended with Taylor being shot five times, bleeding out on the floor. To get a better understanding of where Breonna Taylor's life was headed before that night, Kalamachi interviewed officials and people who knew her, including her boyfriend and family, and read 1,500 pages of police records. In the course of the investigation, Kalamachi learned of Taylor's plans. A heartbreaking detail is that she had post-it notes and envelopes all around her apartment displaying her goals for the year. She had just bought a car. She wanted to buy a home and have a baby with her partner. As her mother said, she was a better version of me, full of life, easy to love. But her ex-boyfriend's run-ins with the police had ensnared her, even as she tried to move on. We learn how sloppy police work and a failure to follow protocol led to a raid which turned deadly. To read this full 24-minute piece is to get a true understanding of the woman behind the rallying cry and of how the mechanisms within police departments cause life-threatening danger to black Americans. It appeared in last Sunday's New York Times, and it's one of the best, most important investigations I've read in a long while. Next up is a story from The Economist on the progress of Elon Musk's company Neuralink, which aims to create a computer that can talk directly to the brain and to allow humans to move objects by thought. In an internet broadcast on August 28th, Musk unveiled Gertrude, a pig with a chip implanted in her brain. That chip is known technically as a brain-computer interface, and it can read the brain's signals. This kind of tech could be used to control a prosthetic limb, or even reinstate control over limbs that have been paralysed by a spinal cord injury. It could also, eventually, send signals in the opposite direction, suppressing an imminent epileptic seizure, for example. That all might sound cool and futuristic, but the danger up until now is that it involves invasive surgery that carries the threat of infection but Musk has thought of that too. He has also developed a robot which can implant the chip in less than an hour with such precision that it can avoid any blood vessels in the area. When Neuralink first came about, the media mostly treated it as yet another of Elon Musk's pie-in-the-sky moonshots. And sure, he still wants to create a world where thoughts and memories are downloadable and humans can be upgraded with artificial intelligence. But this update demonstrates how far the tech has already come and offers a practical vision of where it could go in the future. The hope is that by sending signals back to the brain, this chip could help treat anxiety and depression, along with helping paralyzed people move again. For the full four-minute update on mind-reading technology, check out the piece from Friday's Economist. Things are moving faster than you might think. Finally today, I've got a thought-provoking piece from anthropologist James Sussman in FT Weekend on our illogical and unsustainable attitude to work. We slave away during our long, always-on work weeks in pursuit of money and status in an economy that demands our exhaustion just to function properly. But it wasn't meant to be like this. 
great thinkers of the 20th century, including Bertrand Russell and John Maynard Keynes, predicted that working hours would decline as our economic system became increasingly obsolete. Instead, many of us work longer hours than people did back then. Where this piece differs from the usual economic take on why we should work less is in its scope. Sussman takes the long view, showing how the agricultural revolution is largely to blame for our wonky ideas about work, and that for more than 95% of human history, people enjoyed more leisure time than we do now. Sussman has been studying hunter-gatherer societies for three decades, and his research into how they organize their economies is fascinating. It also raises big questions about how we organize our own. We are preoccupied with the idea of scarcity, that our resources are finite and ultimately unable to satisfy our insatiable wants. We're also preoccupied with the idea of hard work being a moral good. But the groups Sussman studied rarely worked more than 15 hours per week because that was enough to sustain them. Now is the perfect time to reassess these values and the kinds of jobs we consider truly important. As automation threatens the employment market and COVID-19 corrodes it, we have the opportunity to reorganize the industrial world. For an enlightening deep dive into Sussman's arguments, check out the full nine-minute piece from last Friday's FT Weekend. Thanks for joining me for this week's top stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at blendle.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Blendle. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.